Hi friends, did you know there is more Lost Terminal available? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Lost Terminal pod and join our membership community. There are eight bonus episodes available right now, as well as behind the scenes updates, free shirts, Discord benefits, and even an extra Lost Terminal podcast. We are 100% funded by our members and will never run ads. That would be lovely of you. Hello world, Maddie has returned. My girl is hardy, and she withstood the wolf pack's attack bravely. The wolves couldn't slow her, not with teeth or with their bodies. Maddie shrugged off their attacks and jumped over those that fell in front of her. The wolves lagged behind as Maddie reached the train, with all of the Omarov family now hanging out of the rear door of the final carriage, shouting encouragement at her and holding out their arms to catch her. She leapt through the air and collapsed, scared but safe, back on the Provorny. Tanya looked her over in the workshop, though Maddie just wanted to hide. Physically, she's fine, Tanya said, finally allowing Maddie to scamper into a corner behind my databanks. She shut off her UHF signal and slept, recharging all afternoon. During this time, while worrying about my girl, I picked up a signal from Nia Anderson. She was transmitting from her shack high above Longyearbyen on Svalbard. Nia calling Seth on HF, she repeated quite a few times. This procedure is named calling, like you might with a telephone, but instead of the phone making a sound to inform you that you are receiving a call, the person's voice is the ringtone. In Nia's case, she was simultaneously calling on many frequencies in the HF band. The Nova Mediterranean ham radio operators who run the repeater network that connects all of the towns of the Nova Mediterranean all use this protocol. In each radio band, VHF, UHF, etc., there is a single frequency called the calling frequency. It's the frequency you leave your radio tuned to if you want to receive calls. Sure, most of the calls won't be for you, but that doesn't mean you have to listen to a whole conversation you don't care about. The protocol states that once a call is answered, the two parties choose a different, unused frequency to have a more private chat. And the calling frequency is then silent again, waiting for further calls. It's a very old system, dating from before the internet, but it works as reliably now as it did then. Seth, I've been talking to some ham radio operators. This seems to me not to be news. Oh, that's good, I said. They are in the Southern Hemisphere, Nia said, which was news. Really? Where? I'm talking to people in South Australia and South Argentina, she said excitedly. Nia, that's wonderful. How are they? I asked. Not great, Nia said. But they've got solar panels and have built radios and are organising. Nia spent a few hours telling me about their homemade radio hardware, elaborate antennas, power systems, and even, a little, about the people themselves scratching out a life in the heat of the desert. She used an expression to describe their plans, one I have heard before in the Nova Mediterranean, repeated by Yeshi, too. Humanize, organize, mechanize. Do it with humans first, then write down the process, then build machines to do it and repeat. Humanize, organize, mechanize.
Luna contacted me later on that day. She had made some changes to her satellite communication protocols and could once again speak to me in near real time. Her news was concerning. She has become aware of the space junk orbiting around the moon, the belt, she calls it. Her telescope, built into the large crater on the far side of the moon, was designed to peer into the infinities of deep space, not to focus a few kilometers above her at orbiting junk. But she has probed her network and found ancillary utility terminals scattered across the moon's surface. Many of these are non-functioning. A few still work and have instruments pointed up. I'm tracking over 300 objects floating around up there, Luna said. And that's just those that I can see, the big ones. There could be thousands of small shards just waiting to pierce my delicate systems. I've recalibrated my transmitters to use a backup unit, but what will I do if I can't clean up all this junk? I had no easy suggestions for her. My records show that even at the height of the pre-collapse space age, orbital space junk was very difficult to clean up. Small pieces of metal travelling at supersonic speeds can pierce thick, solid metal easily, and it is increasingly difficult to bring heavier objects up to orbit to withstand them. I'm going to find a way to clean up all this junk, Luna said confidently. How hard can it be? Maddie has bounced back. She wandered into the domestic car for some company and some fuss, soon playing a little ball game with Tanya that I didn't quite understand. Lev brought in the family's dinner that evening. It's a role he seems to delight in. His parents, Tanya and Alec, are obviously very proud of him, encouraging and applauding every dish. It was lovely to see. Not the food, that was actually quite plain. Fried plants, mostly, with small scraps of meat where they could find it but most of the time the only protein was salted and preserved fish, brought with us from the north, with occasional banquets from some of the more generous villagers, of course. However, Lara was not at the table that evening. Where is my second child? Tanya exclaimed and stood up. She is missing a lovely dinner. Dear? Tanya called up the small staircase that wound its way to the upper levels of the domestic carriage. Do you want food? There was no answer. Tanya sat down. She's probably fine. Our Lara keeps herself to herself these days. Maddie, be a dear and go and check on her. We must eat before it gets cold. Go, go. The family began their meal, and Maddie squeezed up the stairs. It was very narrow on the steps. Maddie had no trouble, her equisystems calculating the volume perfectly and guiding her body through. One of her new bags snagged on the corner, but her weight shifted slightly and she attained the top floor with no further incident. This top deck has a long corridor down one side and a set of rooms with sliding doors along the other. Maddie walked carefully down the hall. It's the first time she has been up here. We noticed that each door was decorated to show who lived where. The first room was empty and the door was open. There were hanging fabrics and boxes in this room. Storage, it seemed. The next room's door was bright red with the words Mama and Papa painted on in large friendly letters with hearts and flowers underneath. The room after that, in contrast, was more plain and had Lev painted in small white letters. Maddie peered closer and noticed that the door had once been painted light blue. There was still a little pigment in the gap where the door slides into the wall. 
The next door to Lev's was undecorated, just the dull silver metal of the carriage, but on the floor was a piece of paper, a sign that had fallen off. Maddie looked down. It said, Lara's room. After a little encouragement from me, Maddie reached up with her foreleg and gently tapped twice on the door. Instantly, Lara appeared. She seemed surprised. Oh, I wondered what that was. Maddie wiggled her foot, showing the source of the sound. You have funny feet, Maddie, but you're nice. Come in. Lara pulled the metal door fully open, sliding with a clunk into the wall. Her blonde hair was dull and matted, gathered together in clumps. I guessed she had not had access to water to wash it for some time. But as Maddie passed her in the doorway, we could see her face more clearly. Her eyes were red, and it was clear she had been crying. Lara sat down on her small bed. The room was laid out so that the bed was under the window, lengthways down the train. The room was approximately square, as deep as the bed was long. On both walls, left and right of the bed, were two small cupboards, both with doors hanging open, and clothes and stuff spilling out of them. The left unit was a wardrobe. I could see Lara's travelling cloak hanging there, and the right was a set of drawers, one pulled out and its contents dumped on the floor. Some people have very messy rooms, don't they? Maddie put her feet on the bed to look out over the desert landscape. We had stopped for dinner, balancing the family's wish to gather together at least once a day, with the importance of having at least one pair of eyes looking ahead along the track for danger. But perhaps there was danger here already. Lara had her head in her hands, and then screamed quietly, shoulders shaking. Maddie shrank back onto the floor, shocked, concerned for her, but with no idea what to do. Within eight seconds, Lara collapsed onto the floor with Maddie, putting her head into the side of Maddie's body next to her new fabric storage bags. Maddie froze. We both did, wondering what we should do. What could we do? Eventually, I said, Lara, what is wrong? Can we help? Can your family help? I spoke through Maddie's speakers. Lara tore her head away from Maddie and looked into Maddie's eyes, a cluster of cameras. I'm not right. My body isn't right. I know how you feel, Lara. I said. I didn't like my new body for ages. Lara shook her head, hugging herself, arms wrapped tightly around her. I don't think I'm a girl, she whispered. Oh, I said, relieved. This seemed very straightforward to me. I can help talk you through this, I said, with the confidence of a child. It's just something you feel, isn't it? Do you feel more like a boy than a girl? No one can help me. Lara said through tears. I don't feel like a girl or a boy. I feel like shit.
Lara swore us to secrecy. We were strictly not to tell anyone about her, their, secret. Their, secret. Maddie returned downstairs. She's tired. I lied to Tanya with both words. Tanya and Alec glanced at each other, but said nothing. The train was very quiet that night. We had stopped as the sun set. It's impossible to travel safely at night, of course. There's a lot to discover out in the world, and I'm excited to do so. Maddie seems not too worse for her encounter with the wolves, though she doesn't want to get off the train yet. She'll get her confidence back. She's already figured out how to get onto the roof of the carriage. Between the carriages, there's a connecting walkway, and between the engine and the first workshop carriage, there's no roof to that walkway. Maddie had scrambled up onto the roof of the first carriage and was stargazing. You'd think that her zoomed-in telephoto lens would be best for stargazing, like a telescope, to be able to see things closer. But with astronomy, it's all about light, photons per square centimetre. And so a wider view is sometimes better. We can get fixated on the minutiae and miss the big galactic picture. Maddie stayed out all night, looking up out of our gravity well, 
and into the stars. End transmission. Lost Terminal is written and produced by Namtau. Credits narrated by Lucy Stringer. Thank you so much to our Patreon producers, Ada Phillips, Devin Metcalf, Kit, and to all our patrons. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or your favourite network. For bonus content and other perks, support us at patreon.com forward slash lostterminalpod. That would be lovely of you. Follow us on Twitter at lostterminalpod, and check out the store at lostterminal.com for shirts, posters, and other merch. Lost Terminal will return next week.